Uh, now we actually have a testimony, uh, a story of faith that we want you to hear from uh, Gary Payne. Gary, come on. Would you welcome Gary? Um, thank you for welcoming me in. Um, the story I have to, today, I, I, my wife and I, Janet, moved uh, to Columbus in 1983. And I had really developed this theory on my own that I didn't need a church. We didn't join a church, and we really weren't looking for a church. We had a long-distance relationship with a church in Chicago, Illinois, where I was baptized, and that worked for a long, long time. We did by videotape and letter, or at least in my theory, I thought it worked. Uh, and I had convinced myself through my own theory that this was fine, that I could work with that, and that was going to be my life, and I could study on my own, and things were going to be great. And about seven or eight years ago, we decided that this really wasn't a good plan. Uh, I talked to the pastor in Chicago, and he encouraged me to find a local church. So I did, as probably every one of you did when you went to look for a church, as I went to my bank first and asked them for advice. That's what you guys all did, right? Um, but it turned out, seriously, that the banker that we did business with did most of the loans for the banks in Franklin County. So we went to her and said, what's a good church? And she said, come here. So we did. We sat out here one day and had the address wrong in Google at some point, and we got lost. So rather than walk in late, we decided we'd just go home. This was a good plan, but didn't work. And we let it go. Several weeks passed until we said, you know what, we really need to do this. So the day we came in, we found it. We came in on time, even ran into somebody that we knew. We were warmly greeted by the greeters. The person that we knew introduced us to several other members, and we felt great, just pretty much how we thought that would go. Nothing extraordinary until I walked through those doors right over there. And as I did, and this is not me, this isn't like me at all, but what came over me were the words, if two or more of you are gathered in my name, I will be there with you. And I felt it, and I heard it, it was in me, and I, it startled me. And again, that's not the kind of thing that I normally have happen to me, so I didn't really know how to take it, but it moved me. And I walked in, and I sat down, and just about the time I'm getting over that, the sermon starts. And we had been through this many, many years search for a church. And through the conviction that I had that I didn't need a church, the sermon that day was on church is the center of our relationship with God. And I said, okay, you got my attention, God. I know you're talking to me. There's a lot of other people in this room. But you got my attention. What is it you want me to do? And we became active. We became members of this church. It was an interesting day for me. And I have not forgotten it, as you might tell from my, my story here. Um, it was about f five years later. No, it was, I'm sorry, it was about two years later, about five years ago, that I realized that God, again, was trying to tell me the two hours a week that you give me in church is not really what I'm looking for. And I call it my 266 theory. I get 166 hours a week, God gets two. I come to church, and that was it. So I joined a small group. We got active in a small group. The small group um, was a, a couple's group. The leader of that group got transferred out of town. We took it over and we started to host a group. My wife and I got very actively involved. We got actively involved in, I got actively involved in a men's group, and we truly connected to this community. So really what my story is today is when I found out what was missing is God was asking me to allow him to get into my life. And the, as I write this so that I could give this presentation, a thought came to me that sometimes there's a message that comes to the messenger. I wrote to myself, and I'm looking at it, and I realize that a lot of times 
when I came to church, and the reason we came is we were struggling. We had some things going on in our life that wasn't very pleasant, and we were going through some tough times. And a lot of people, a lot of my friends, a lot of the people that I know come to church when times are tough. And what I heard God say, and mostly through the small group connection, was share your life with me. You've had a lot of wonderful things happen to you, and I have a wonderful life. God wants me to share that with him. God was willing to be part of that every day of my life, whether whatever it is, my 266 theory wasn't working, and God invited me. And through that connection, and I wanted to come today and say, by connecting to you and many of you I know through small groups, I know through other social activities here, thank you for allowing me into your life and to connect with you and allow me to grow in my relationship with God because of my connection to you. There's my story. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Gary. That really ties into our message today, too. We've been talking about the real Jesus, the real, uh, uh, not, not, not the Jesus we make up, but the real Jesus with us. And one of the things that we get to actually start to examine today, after having spent time the last few weeks looking at the descriptions of who he is and his, uh, his first words recorded in Mark, we get to actually start looking at his actions today. And one thing that stands out to me in this, uh, that st- stood out to me in Gary's story is the fact that sometimes we approach our faith like it's just words, like it's morality, like it's good things, like it's inspiring teaching, and yet Gary walks in here and senses the very presence of God drawing him. And today we actually get to see, after talking last week about the kingdom of God drawing near and wanting to be with us now and us to begin to experience that power, we get to today look at what that looks like in experiencing that presence of God among us. Let's look at the scripture. The scripture for today is in Mark 1, 21 through 34. And it says this, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, saying that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon, who we better know as Peter, his mother-in-law, lay ill with a fever. And immediately, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began serving them. That evening, at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This passage has a lot of stuff to talk about in it, but the thing that stands out to me at first is is that they were astonished. They were amazed. This is a strong reaction that the crowds had to Jesus and his teaching. And what was it about Jesus? What was it about them that declared that he teaches like no one else, that he has authority, as they said? Was it his way of speaking? I think there was probably a little bit of that. 
I mean, if you really look at Jesus' teaching and what he says and, and how he teaches, Jesus was not politically correct. He broke a lot of norms and was really direct about the things he talked with. And he was provocative even about the things he talked about. So maybe there was a little bit of authority in the way he spoke. Was it his elegant teaching or his oratory? And maybe even a little bit of that. I mean, we know from reading the scriptures that his parables, even for people who don't know the Bible, they still quote his parables not even realizing it because he was a great storyteller. He was elegant. He was eloquent. He was powerful in the way he spoke. But was he really different, that much different than the scribes and the teachers of that day? I don't know. I mean, there were a lot of teachers that day who've written books that we still have and writings that we still have, and we know that some of the teachers of that day were very, very eloquent. So is that really what it is, this teaching with authority? This word that describes authority, it's, it's the word exousia, it doesn't mean brilliant, it doesn't mean smart, intellectual, it doesn't mean knowledgeable. This word means power. It means rulership. It means having dominion, having absolute control over a situation, having the power to enact what one says. In Daniel 7, it describes Jesus this way in a prophecy about him. It says, he has given, he was given, Jesus was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion or rulership that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Today we get to see that not only Jesus declares that the kingdom is near, but we get to see the demonstration of what that looks like when he comes near. And the implication for that in what we've seen just in a moment here already is that God wants to make a difference both now in our life and in eternity. It's not just about eternity. He wants to actually come into our life now and demonstrate that he has authority to change our lives now as the kingdom breaks into our lives. It's the good news becoming real, not just something we believe in, not just something we hope for. It's something being realized right now, and it astonished the people of that day. And all of that means, all of what that means, that word astonishment can mean many different things. It astonished people who were, who were excited, who were joyful, who were relieved, who were hopeful. It, it astonished people who were fearful and, and they, they became distant to Jesus. It astonished people who became angry and jealous over the power he had and the authority that he was taking away from them or that they perceived he was taking away from them. It astonished people to the point that they became rebellious and unwilling to accept his authority. It did all of those things. And the interesting thing for me in this whole uh, record of, of Peter's uh, recollection of the eyewitness accounts he had with Jesus that Mark is writing for us is, is this, that, that they start the demonstration of the authority and the impact it has in our life through the discussion of a situation involving demons. In the Western world, in America and Europe especially, we treat so easily stories like this as superstition. Why? Because we know better. 
We're more enlightened. We understand the chemical differences that cause seizures or cause misbehavior. We understand the things that go on in the brain and the, and the, the social and psychological things that cause people to become mass murderers. We understand those things. We study them. And so we, we look at those things and we approach them and say, we're more enlightened and it's nice that the story is here, but there probably really weren't demons. It was just Jesus healing because that's just superstition back then and we know better now. But it's really easy to dismiss that. It's really easy to explain it away, to say we know better. But can I push back on that a little bit? without the alarm bells going off, and, and if you don't believe the same way, would you just at least listen for a moment, open-heartedly? You know, the view that there is no supernatural, that there are no demons in the world, is really a view that is only about 200 years old in any kind of predominance, and then it's only predominant in the Western world. So to argue that we are more enlightened and we understand reality better than the billions and billions and billions of people that went before that and the billions of people that are intellectual, alive today, that have doctorate degrees, are, are very well-educated people today who still believe that there is a spiritual reality, it's rather arrogant to argue that with the excuse that we're just more enlightened. We're more intelligent we know more. We can see things at the cellular level. You know, think about it this way. You know, I'm old enough to have grown up in the heart of the Cold War. And I had this one fear in the heart of the Cold War. I lived in rural Minnesota. I knew a bomb wasn't going to drop on us. There was nothing but a few animals and a few crops to kill there. So here was my thinking as a child when I would think about that too much. The bombs are going to go off. If I survive the nuclear fallout, then I'm going to be in a, living in a world where all the libraries have been destroyed practically, where all the people who understand how to build computers and how to understand how to build cars and how to, how to mine for ore and actually where to find it and how to do all this stuff, we're going to be instantly back to the Stone Age because all the, half the people or most of the people who know how to do that are going to be dead. We're not going to have running water. We're not going to have anything. That, this was my thinking, Okay. Think with me for a minute like that. How superior intelligently, how, how, how superior do you feel in intelligence to a caveman when you think of that? Isn't it kind of arrogant? Because the reality is, even beyond, looking beyond that, that, that intelligence and science doesn't mean we're more spiritually or more morally superior than anybody else in all of history. And second, if you believe God is a, God is a supernatural being, then, it, then, it, then it's just a simple, a simple, easy argument to say that there are also other spiritual forces, including, including demons. It's, it's, it's illogical to argue for one and not accept the possibility of the other. But if you don't believe in the supernatural at all, then all that exists is simply accidental. It's it's molecules interacting with each other and it's survival of the fittest. And if our lives are a random dance of molecules, then what anthropologist Helen Fisher says is true. Helen Fisher was shown a picture of a married couple walking out of a church. And she is quoted to have said this. She says, this man just achieved the highest achievement 
any human being can achieve, the passing on of his DNA. Now, I remember calling Wendy's parents and asking for her hand in marriage. And I went on and on about stuff like, I, she's just the most amazingly compassionate person. I just, I can just hardly wait to be around her. She's so intelligent and so smart. She challenges me. I love her, the way she thinks. And, you know, eventually I got to, she was really hot too in that statement. But, but you know, with the parents, you kind of, you know, you t- kind of tame that down and you, tell, you say all the other stuff, right? But you say that, right? Right? And they said Yes. And 25 years later, it's still the same, only we just have lots more wonderful, beautiful memories, and I still think the same thing about her. Can you imagine if I would have gone to them and I would have said, I really want to marry your daughter because I think she's the best person to pass my DNA through? Can you hear the shotgun cocking? You think that would have gone over really well in that process? You know, if we doubt the spiritual reality, it becomes very, very, very difficult for us to explain Sudan and Rwanda and terrorists in Iraq and Pakistan and Afghanistan. It becomes very, very difficult to explain suicide bombers and sociopaths without wrestling with the reality that there is a very real evil presence that is spiritual, that goes beyond simple logic, simple chemistry, simple science, simple social science. And Jesus challenges us the very first thing out of the gate in this eyewitness account to deal with the reality of the demonic all around us, the spiritual battle, and that the kingdom is all about destroying those works and bringing freedom to us. It uses the word unclean, or sometimes translated evil spirit, and it comes from the Old Testament. It just means to be ceremonial defiled, contaminated, something that is excluded from the presence of God, worship, something that is invasive, something that is intrusive, that does not belong because it corrupts the beauty, it brings sickness, and it brings disease. And all throughout the Bible and through Christian history, when demonic activity is discussed, it's discussed in these following ways. It's discussed that, that Satan comes His demons come and they make accusations to us through other people, through our own mind. They accuse us of things that destroy the identity that God wants us to have in life. That teach us, that that try to tell us that we are not who God says we are. They they come and they take our thoughts and they make them to become controlling thoughts or controlling beliefs that that end up in in addictions. In fact, the, the most common understanding in the Bible and throughout Christian history is that demons take what is already there as a seed of sin, a seed of wrong belief, a seed of wrong perception of who we are, and they magnify it. It's something that's already there. And sin we talked about before, is simply this. It's acknowledging and following any authority or anything other than God. So Satan takes our insecurities and he twists them into evil. In fact, he also even takes the good things 
And he makes them become dominating, enslaving things in our life so that he magnifies both evil and good to consume us. So beauty becomes eating disorders. Comfort becomes addiction. Success becomes workaholism that fractures our relationships. Bitterness remains unforgiven and becomes this great big thing from something small that divides and destroys and breaks relationships. Injustice becomes this crusading sense of hardness and criticism and suspicion of other people that alienates relationship and does not allow us to live in a way that loves our enemies like Jesus invites us to do. We become shadows of who we really are. And following Jesus in this kingdom means that we're following him into a battle that's not just flesh and blood. Frankly, though all, not, though all sin is not, not active demonization, and demonization takes many forms from simple accusing and harassing thoughts to all the way to possession, when we understand this reality of life, that there is a spiritual presence that is not God, that is evil, it greatly helps us look past even the most evil person to begin to see glimpses of who God is in them and the good creation that he originally placed and created them to be, lovingly treating them in spite of all the wrongs they do to us, to see people differently. And Jesus deals with this in just simple, clear way. He just simply commands the demon to leave and asks the demons, and we see in this passage and other places, he consistently asks the demons to be silent, to not make a big show. It reminds me of the phrase that that the one who has the most authority speaks the softest. But it's more than that. I mean, the Bible scholars will argue that Jesus did this uh, asking them to be silent and not allowing them to draw a lot of attention to themselves because he knew that he wanted to control his fame. And there's probably a good argument in that. But, But I think it's bigger than that. His actions are in keeping with more than just keeping things in tame. More, it, it's, it's he doesn't power up with them. And we talked the last couple of weeks about how Jesus comes to us as this incarnate God to be like us, to be tempted in every way, to know us in our weakness, to be, to be kind to us and look kindly towards us in our weakness as a, as a bruised reed that he will not break. Instead, he treats us tenderly. And I think the way Jesus deals with these things and wanting to even keep silence is, is twofold. I think he, he, he wants to show through the way he even deals with the greatest presence of evil that harasses us, his gentleness with us and his kindness. It's hard, part of him expressing his heart towards people. You know, one of the things that I think turns many of us off, if we see it in movies or have seen it in person or turned me off in seeing this type of stuff in person, is that so many people who deal with what we call deliverance ministry, dealing with the demonic and stuff, they tend to power up a lot like basketball games where it's just really harshly competitive, lots of trash talking, lots of cheering, lots of power-up stuff going on, yet Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't power up because he wants to express the depth of his gracious, patient, kind love, even in the way he deals with this in our lives. The authority expressed in real life, in the real Jesus, is complete, awesomely complete, that leaves us astonished. And yet it's tenderly and kindly displayed. And here's the second thing. It's not displayed for his own glory. 
if it was explained for his own, if it was to be for his own glory, he would have said to everybody who was healed and everybody who was delivered of demons, he would have said, go out and tell everybody. But he consistently tells people, both who are, who are delivered of demons and who are healed, to not go tell people to be silent. I think there's a lesson in this for us, whether it's authority we have in business, authority we have in family, authority, spiritual authority God gives us to win spiritual battles. It doesn't matter where that authority is. Real authority is about loving the other and bringing freedom and wholeness to all of life in the other person. It's about the other person. It's not about the person wielding the authority. And so real authority doesn't need to draw attention to itself or promote itself. Jesus moves on from this to healing physical ailments. And the implications of this and healing Peter's uh, mother-in-law is that mother-in-laws are good. So we all go home. No. Uh, mother-in-laws are good, but the kingdom, affects, uh, the kingdom affects not just the spiritual world, but it affects the physical world as well. See, one of the mistakes that often gets made when we start dealing with this whole spiritual battle idea and the idea that demons can be active in harassing us and other people in life is we start becoming exclusive and we start saying, well, this is all demonic. Jesus, in tying these two things together, the dealing of the spiritual and the dealing of the physical, basically leaves us with the idea that we can't go down the path that all maladies all illness, all mental illness, physical illness, it's not all just chemically based. Nor can we go down the path that all sickness and all those other things are demonically based either. Jesus comes to address both. And here's one of the frustrating parts of this in the Bible. And the frustrating parts of this in ministry and practice is there is no clear delineation. There is no... A, B, C, if these things are right, then you know it's chemical. This, if A, B, C, if you know these are right, then you know it's spiritual. There's no clear delineation of this to know whether it's chemically-based manic or demonically-based manic or whatever you want to use for an illustration. It just says stuff like this, like in 1 John 4, 1, where another one of Jesus' uh, disciples records this. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This kingdom authority is about knowing the presence of God and being led by the Holy Spirit. And I believe, frankly, that the Bible doesn't delineate a lot of this stuff and make it easy for us because he wants us to never get to the point where we're looking at a rule book saying, if all these things are true, then it's demons. If all these things are, if these things are not there, then it's physical. I think he wants us to be so dependent on his presence and his leading that he's the only one who can answer that for us and lead us through that process. This scripture is also a clear warning for us today that a lot of times in our society, being spiritual is, is seen as a good thing. The fact of the matter is there are good and there are bad spirits. You can be very spiritual and be very misled and be very wrong. And as we follow, God's inviting us to learn to fight the battle with the same gentleness because the kingdom is at hand and the authority of God is real. But how does this walking this out and this authority out of God change us on a daily basis? How do we live this daily? When I asked that question, this is the first thing that came to mind. 
Because I've heard this, and no matter how many years, this still comes to mind. But we're not God. We're not like Jesus. We don't have the same discernment, right? And that's an argument a lot of us have, and it actually denies really the true meaning of the incarnation. That Jesus, it says in Colossians, limited himself so that he lived as a man having to be led by the Holy Spirit in the same way we are, doing the works of God through this whole same Holy Spirit that we are led to follow. But even if we put that aside and say, well, I'm still not sure I can swallow that, Jesus is asking us to follow him. And here's the point. If we follow Jesus, we can expect him to do the same thing through us as we follow because the kingdom is here and it's near. And the thing that encourages me most in this is that this helps, to, helps me see myself differently and it can help you see yourself and your struggles differently. If you have addictions and sins, they could be very much physical in nature, but the fact of the matter is that, is that the, the enemy would have no greater joy than to amplify those addictions and things that you struggle with chemically and add and intensify a very spiritual battle that makes it harder for you to find freedom. And the very fact that we can know that Jesus is here with us, willing and able to deliver us, willing and able to, to heal us, encourages me. It should encourage us. It doesn't give us license to blame. We can't say, oh, that's just all a spiritual attack and I have no responsibility there because the enemy only gets in at the places where we open doors. So there's always us that still have to go to God in repentance. We can't blame but it also not only changes the way we think about ourselves, but it changes the way we think about other people. How many times do you get so angry with another person that you just can hardly stand it because of their repeated behavior that you know is driven by insane insecurity in their life? Nobody's here has ever had that experience, have you? Right? Isn't the reality of life that conflict happens when we touch somebody else's insecurity? Have you ever thought about that? What, what is insecurity anyway? Insecurities are those areas of your life where you do not have a sense of peace. You don't have a sense of security. You don't have an identity of who you are solidly established to the point that you are content, that you are secure, you're not threatened, you are joyful and happy regardless of what happens around you. And insecurities are clear marks in our lives of places where we do not see ourselves as God sees us, where we do not trust God's plan as being good in our lives yet. There are places, insecurities are places where we give authority and power to other controlling ideas, other controlling thoughts, other controlling perspectives of who we are. And many of those things are amplified by a very real spiritual battle that Satan comes to and ensures that those buttons get pushed on a regular basis with us, bending and twisting. And see, when I, when I begin to see this spiritual battle, it gives me the opportunity to see people and their hearts differently and to change the way I respond to them and pray for them differently. In my last job, 
This is just an illustration many of you probably experienced yourselves at some point. In my last job, there was a board that governed all the work that I, that I and my boss did in that setting. And there were things that we felt very strongly that God was leading us to do, and the board itself would actually approve those things and set up accountability structures to do them. But then there were two members of the board who would act, one of them would passively oppose and the other one would actively oppose what they just set us up for doing. And about six years into that job, I was going, God, these guys are going to prevent everything you're wanting to do. There's no way, and there was so much frustration and so much anger towards them. Who's that been in your life? Who's held you back? Who, do you, who would you use that phrase about saying, they have held me back? They damaged me, they spoke to me. Who's the boss or who's somebody in your life that you said, I will never get a promotion, I will never get to do what I want to do, I will never get to fulfill what God said he wanted to do through my life, not because I'm not trying, but because these people won't let me. Have you ever had that experience? Anybody? Am I the only one? We all have that, don't we? And it's so easy to get angry and to have so much tension in that relationship. But when we realize that God wants to bring security to their identity, that there are spiritual forces, not just natural forces, there are spiritual forces pushing those buttons of insecurity, it changes the way we think about people. It changes the way we pray. It causes us to walk into that same room where we expect resistance and conflict with a prayerful attitude, expecting God's kingdom to come, expecting God to remove those forces, expecting God to give us an opportunity in some way in that meeting to reinforce the real identity, the real security that God wants to bring to that person. And it completely changes the dynamic of the relationship. And that's the beauty of what God wants to do. He says it in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And we don't like that because too often we think, well, if I say that, then there's no blame on their part. This is not dealing with blame. This is not saying there's no blame. It's just reorienting our thinking. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil, and the heavenly realm. Our struggle is not against Sue or Bob or Mary or Richard or the boss or the family or the friend that that we think is blocking us that, that keeps us down. It's against the lies. It's against the ruling, controlling thoughts that control their lives. It's against the spiritual forces that push on those insecurities and keep people thinking the wrong things and believing the wrong things and not seeing themselves for who God has really created them to be. Good, beautiful people moving towards wholeness because his kingdom is here. And in this battle of the kingdom that God's inviting us to, he's inviting us to see people differently. And this is such a critical part for us to be becoming fishers of men of helping take people from chaos to order, from dark to light, from pain to healing, from disease to health. To be able to fight this fight with a prayer and with a heart that's different. You see, when I apply this, it means walking into into a room where I expect conflict and I expect God's good resolution. It changes our expectation. The Jesus kingdom authority creates a different expectation in us through prayer to see God's 
God silence the normal negative that we would expect through prayer to see God take somebody's normal negative that we expect and either, either resolve it because of compassion and because of a change in the way he wants to do it or remove it and confuse it so it doesn't affect the people in the room around us. And instead, we see peace and clarity emerging. Here's the question. Where can you expect? Where can you prayerfully expect God to act on your behalf this week to change the circumstances, to enter the room saying, God, remove the works of the enemy and create an opportunity here to reinforce the identity in that person the way you see them. Lord, thank you that you are an awesome, powerful God that you have complete authority. Lord, we ask today that you would open our eyes even more clearly to the spiritual battle that is real, that you would lead us clearly in that, that we would not become weird, we would not become religious in it, but we would become powerful because we follow you. And we give you the glory. And it's not about our glory, it's not about our effectiveness, it's about you changing people's lives you changing our lives. Lord, I ask today for the people here who right now are being harassed by a, a spiritual element that amplifies the addiction, amplifies the thoughts of negativity towards themselves or towards a situation uh, that just makes those thoughts become controlling thoughts. Lord, I pray that you would come right now and by your spirit, in the name of Jesus, remove that spiritual element of the battle and that you would bring hope and freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you, if you, uh, if you feel like God has been showing you today or throughout the last week that there is an, uh, an element of the battle in your life that is very spiritual, that is very life-controlling, and you need maybe some other people to join you in prayer for that, to help fight that battle with you, that's part of being friends with faith. Would you grab a friend or would you grab somebody up front afterwards and pray with them? Um, and if you're here today, uh, you know, God does heal. I don't know why he doesn't heal physically all the time, but God does heal. Can we just press in? If you're here today and you're sick, would you let somebody pray for you down here or a friend before you go? God bless. Have a great week.